0: Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behaviour, sleep, and more. Babies are born to be social, they want to communicate with people despite not being able to physically say what they need out loud. The field of infant mental health acknowledges the importance of babies' social and emotional health right from birth until the age of three. Associate Professor Bridget Jordan is a national board member for the Australian Association for Infant Mental Health, and she's here to help explain this a bit more to us. Hi, Bridget. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What is infant mental health? As a, as a parent, I know what my mental health is, but I kind of thought I also wouldn't need to think about it with my kids until they were maybe teenagers. Can you explain what it means to a parent?
1: Well, um, yes, we can take the mental health of infants and toddlers and very young children for granted, but in fact... Infant mental health is an achievement and so what we mean by infant mental health is that um, a baby is developing emotionally in a way that enables them to have uh, positive relationships with their parents, good social interactions, Uh, they're able to express their needs and their preferences and their desires. And uh, it's probably only in the last 10, 20, 30 years that people have paid attention to the fact that infants and toddlers have memories of events and they can respond uh, to traumatic events with signs of distress. So babies, like everybody else, life impacts on them and they can be happy, they can be sad, they can be anxious, they can be worried, they do have memories, they have memories of uh, dramatic events but also they build up memories um, of very small events that help them understand the way that the
0: world works. So how would being born in an ICU affect, or being born and then placed in ICU, affect newborns and their mental health?
1: Well, that's a really good question. And of course, um, the thing to pay attention to is, as for adults, people's reactions are different so um, different experiences impact on individuals in different ways. But there are potentially two sources of stress for the infant in ICU or a baby who's um, uh, born full term but then has a dramatic medical condition that requires surgery like cardiac surgery or something like that. So the first thing is that the baby is like usually babies are born and their first job, if you like, is to sort out being in the world, uh, sorting out the feelings of their body, you know, what's hungry, what's being tired, what's being bored, what's feeling kind of a bit fractious and what's going to fix that. Babies who are placed in ICU are usually there because they're sort of undercooked or um, they've got very serious medical problems. And so these babies are learning what babies normally have to learn but also coping with a body that might be unreliable, a body that might be in pain, a body that might be huffing and puffing and having trouble breathing and so those kind of physical impingements are an emotional demand as well because things are not going smoothly for the baby, things are a big effort So, and, and also um, medical procedures can be frightening, they can be impinging they can be unpredictable so the baby might get in quite an alert an alarmed state because they don't know when something's going to happen to them that will be frightening, will be overwhelming, will be painful. Alongside that, The parents whose task it is to sort of buffer the baby from, you know, the slings and arrows of fortune and what goes on in the house and, you know, too loud an environment or, um, you know, a a too um, kind of curious older brother or sister, that kind of stuff, which is usually what happens at home. Those parents who in hospital are wanting to buffer the baby from what's happening medically are often very uh, frightened themselves, traumatised, might be anxious about the survival of the baby so their minds are sort of doing mental gymnastics trying to come to terms with the unexpected events in terms of the illness of the baby and so they've got less emotional resources to help the baby. So the baby's kind of got a double whammy, they've got the impacts from the hospital environment and they've got parents who are compromised in what they would normally be able to offer the baby.
0: So how do we uh, deal with that as parents, I guess, especially if they're in ICU and perhaps they're in—you can't even touch them. Um, how, how can you help a child in that situation, or does it come afterwards when you're able to take them home? No, it's
1: really, really important for parents to do as much as they can while the baby's in hospital. So it's worth remembering that babies recognise the voice of their mother and father after, um, or, you know, the parents, the people who've been around the baby in utero, those voices are recognised post-birth. So it might be hard to get any feedback from the baby to show you this, but the baby will recognise your voice. The ba- babies recognise the smell of their parents. So being present, touching as much as you can, speaking to the baby, some gentle music, letting the baby know that you're there alongside them is really important. Uh, It it can be hard for parents to have the confidence to do that sometimes because the baby is so in need of medical care and so it's really important to have conversations with the nurses and the medical team about what you can do. In terms of people around the parents, it's really important that they do whatever is needed sort of at home in terms of looking after toddlers, bringing toddlers in to visit um, the mum and dad and the newborn baby, cooking, cleaning, all that kind of stuff so the parents are as free as possible to be with the baby. As much as possible, you don't want to interrupt the normal
0: getting to know you processes that would have happened at home if the baby wasn't unwell. And if a baby has had um, surgery or other medical interventions after birth. I, I know a friend of mine had that happen with her baby and she, for for months afterwards, was feeling that the baby wanted to be with her more, wanted to be on her more, and she, she was more than happy to do that, but felt that that was a result of her going through surgery at such a young age and yet I feel like some people didn't take that seriously they didn't take her seriously that maybe they felt oh the baby's too young to be like that and you need to treat the baby normally for it to get into normal sleep patterns how do you respond to that situation as a as a mental health an infant mental health professional
1: Yeah, so I would respond to that that by saying um, the baby knows what they need and this mother knew what the baby needed. So I would have been supporting her. So babies learn to do things, inverted commas, independently, like sleep you know, independently, um, go out into the world and develop from a secure base. And there were lots of things to wobble that baby's sense of a secure base when they were in hospital. And so the baby is needing a bit more, I call it scaffolding, folding from mum and dad. Before they're able to do those things independently. In in a way um, I've surveyed parents of babies six weeks after they went home from um, having cardiac surgery and there were high rates of feeding sleeping and crying problems even though the babies were four and a half months old and so I think that these babies are learning to do normal stuff but that they, they um, have also had to cope with the surgery and impacts of being in hospital and so no wonder it takes them a bit longer to navigate that whole cycle of feeding and sleeping and being alert and playing and feeling confident um, that they can kind of do that a bit more on their own and with a bit less scaffolding from mum and dad. So I think it's really important that parents have the confidence to give their baby what they think their baby needs and you cannot spoil a baby. Babies, like once, once babies have got what they need from mum and dad, then they're curious about the world. They will, they will kind of separate enough to go out and learn. Um, they don't want to cling to you the whole day just for the sake of clinging to you the whole day. If a baby's clingy, it's because they need a bit more mummy or daddy petrol before they can do other things.
0: We'll be back with Associate Professor Bridget Jordan right after this. When you become a parent, you enter an exclusive club, one that only other parents can truly understand.
1: I spent a lot of time running and yelling names. Come back, get back here.
0: But I bought him one of those backpacks that had a lead, like, you know, a monkey one. Because it doesn't look as bad. Yeah. Like a disguise. (laughs) (laughs) The Parent Panel is a weekly podcast that invites adults to ponder the big questions of looking after small children with more than a bit of humour mixed in. Join us for The Parent Panel wherever you get your podcasts. So what's your response to controlled crying?
1: Well, um, that's a very
0: contentious (laughs) question. I realise that. Just threw a little bomb in there for you.
1: So um, my response to controlled crying is that uh, people from an infant mental health perspective um, struggle a bit for two reasons. One is because it kind of cuts across um, intuitive parenting responses so you know many parents it does not feel right and I'm not comfortable with giving parents instructions to do things that don't feel intuitively right for parents. On the other hand and also I think that leaving a baby to cry and to cry for increasing amounts of time just teaches the baby if you cry longer then the parents will come Um, so we would prefer um, ways of helping the babies to sleep that are built on The baby feeling safe enough to go to sleep by themselves um, and the baby having the confidence to do that. Having said that, um, some babies do respond to structure. And sometimes parents are so anxious about a whole muddle of things or have trouble kind of, um, if you like, uh, separating enough from the baby to recognise when the baby's giving them cues that actually they can manage on their own. They just need a bit of a whinge and a grizzle and then they will go off to sleep. Or that they're just protesting a bit and then they'll go off to sleep. So I think one really needs to think about what's the age of the baby What's the emotional developmental stage of the baby? What kind of going-to-sleep nighttime regime is going to suit this baby and this family, but from the point of view of the baby's emotional independence? Um, So (laughs) you need to think about, like, sleep's about separation, so the baby has to kind of be confident that things are going to be the same when they wake up. So if there's a lot of stress in the family, particularly if there's anything like family violence or high conflict between the parents, then you can't expect the baby to go to sleep. Um, but you really, as parents, you need to think about, is this my need to cuddle the baby to sleep or is my baby asking me to be cuddled to sleep? Well
0: that that's a Yes, it does. As a, as a parent who's, I think I've had both, experiences. <laughs> um, we do know now that a baby's attachment to their parents or carers is really important, uh, particularly in that first year. And I think you just touched on um, a question that is rather tricky for parents to understand or to, to get their heads around, and that is how much is too much attachment? Because we have these extremes, the The idea of attachment parenting has changed over time from its actual clinical understanding of the words to what people see as you know baby wearing and a choice to be with their child all the time Um, as from the infant mental health perspective are you able to separate what is enough attachment and what is too much
1: so in a way um, uh, this uh, the way you framed the question uh, kind of reveals the misunderstanding about the concept Mm. so when John Bowlby, back in the 1950s, was kind of um, articulating attachment theory, he says you need to look at attachment behaviour and exploration at the same time. So the idea is that parents need to be emotionally and physically available, so available to the child, so that the child, a child with a secure attachment relationship, knows that they can come back and refuel whenever they need. So it's about the parents being available to give the child as much as the child needs or the baby needs. So parents who have fixed views about, um, you know, I need to carry my child all the time or I need to breastfeed them till they're five or whatever, that's kind of parent-led. That's mm. not baby-led. And so right. um, the idea is, the sign of a good, healthy attachment is that babies are free to explore the environment when there's no... Um, danger in the environment when they you know when they feel physically okay they're well they're happy they're thriving and there's no danger in the environment then they kind of shouldn't be clinging to mum and mum shouldn't be holding on to them too tight so the best position to be in is i'm here and i'm available but i'm not smothering you and neither am i
0: pushing you you know pushing you off um if i get it if i'm understanding you right unappreciating infant mental health when you you've got a baby is about being responsive, available, and not necessarily too um, smothering for the child you you're responding to their cues and signals, I guess does that change as the child gets older is there because of the difference between a baby and a one year old two year old three year old the same ve- It's the same principle though
1: what the child will need will be different yeah. So you know, at the like at, you know, at the playground, like um, a toddler who has a, like you know a 15 or 16 month old, um, you know they're walking, they're walking confidently. You get to a playground and they run, you know, mm-hmm. um, because they just love the freedom of running. So I mean, you need to make a judgment, but um, some research has shown that there's a limit to how far the child will run before they stop and they turn back and look for mum. So what you, what is good is to be in um, you know on a park bench or something, like in a stable place where the child can look back and find you. Now, you have to be ready to bolt if they're not going to stop. <laughs> yes. But it's the same like, um, you know, at the playground with, I don't know, with the swings or with the slide, you know, as a parent, it's your job to make a judgment about, no, that's too high, that's, you know, that's not safe, it is safe. Um but you kind of, you need to be there, you need to appraise, you need to let the child have a go and then, you know, step in if necessary to say it's too high. But it's a balancing act because you you need to think about where's my anxiety coming from? Is it a realistic appraisal or is it because I'm a worrywart?
0: Goodness, it, I feel like we should move on to talking about parent mental health not into <laughs> <'cause> they're, <laughs> because they're enough because they they're entwined aren't they i mean you have to yes. be self aware enough to be aware of your own child's um, mental state
1: Yes, well, their emotional state, but uh, yeah. And also, um, I mean, it's very helpful to think about, um, well, how was I parented? And do I want to do parenting the way my parents did it? Or do I want to do it differently? And, you know, quite often parents do want to do it differently. So parents who may have had parents who were too harsh or um, too slapdash, you know, might want to be kinder and gentler or a bit more engaged and involved. And so then it can be a bit hard to kind of... Um Think about well, what's a good middle distance. Um, so sometimes parents who've had very harsh parenting, um, they find it very hard to have any conflict with their child. So very hard to set any limits because any limit feels cruel. Uh, whereas a three-year-old is terrified if they feel like they run the world and then the parents <laughs> wrapped around their fingers. Well, you know, I mean, at one level it's wonderful. Ooh, you know, um, I'm the king of the castle, you're the dirty rascal. But nursery rhyme, that's what that's about. That's about the omnipotence of a three-year-old. Um, but it's, you know, wonderful and exhilarating and exciting and downright terrifying as well. So, you know, two-year-olds and three-year-olds are kind of flipping between these very big emotions and... Um, kind of finding out where the middle point is. And so it's helpful if parents are able to accept that emotional range and not feel too organized by it. Mm. Um, So uh, it's a tough job, parenting, and it's a job that requires thinking and reflection and mindfulness. There's nothing kind of... I mean, there are some things that kind of feel automatic and if you, the better the experience parents had growing up themselves, then the more automatic it can be because you can kind of rely on drawing on your own experiences and you don't get too frightened by what comes out of your mouth when you respond to the child automatically. But if you weren't happy with your own experiences growing up and you want to do it differently, then it does take quite a bit of recalibrating.
0: Mm. Bridget, it's fascinating. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for your interest. That was Associate Professor Bridget Jordan. She's a national board member for the Australian Association for Infant Mental Health. And we'll put links to the organisation in the notes of this episode. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.